Good evening, and welcome to today's edition of the Claysmore English Department podcast. My name's James Carpenter, and I'd like to talk about Keats's letters. Keats wrote about 300 letters, and they were gathered together by the great American scholar, Hyder Rollins, in the 1940s. Ten years later, uh, Rollins also collected about another 300 letters written by Keats's friends from one to the other. And these four volumes of letters give an extraordinary picture of what life in Keats's time was like. They're detailed, they're factual, they, they range from great philosophical questions right down to sort of the tiniest details of what he might have had for lunch or what kept him awake one night. And they provide in, in so doing a, a portrait of Keats that's unrivaled uh, for any other writer that we have. The first person to collect uh, Keats's letters together formally was in fact a man called James Freeman Clark, who was a well-known uh, religious minister in America, and in 1836 he printed some of Keats's letters, and this is what he said about them. These letters have not hitherto been published, but it appears to us, from the specimens which we've seen of them, that they are of a higher order of composition than his poems. There is in them a depth and grasp of thought, a logical accuracy of expression, a fullness of intellectual power, and an earnest struggling after truth, which remind us of the prose of Burns. They are only letters, not regular treatises, yet they touch upon the deepest veins of thought and ascend the highest heaven of contemplation. So, from the very beginning, uh, Keats's letters have been regarded as something distinctive and something special. And I'd like just to talk in this brief podcast about um, what they suggest about poetry, uh, the idea of the poet, some sense of Keats's personality, and finally, and perhaps most famously, the love he had for Fanny Brown. So firstly, the poetry. When, when we uh, selectively quote from Keats's letters, it it's, can be terribly misleading, because um, in 300 letters, these snippets are kind of extracted from a much wider context. But uh, here he is writing to Reynolds from Carisbrick on the Isle of Wight in April 1817. He says, I find I cannot exist without poetry, without eternal poetry. Half the day will not do. The whole of it I began with a little, but habit has made me a leviathan. I had become all in a tremble from not having written anything of late. The sonnet overleaf did me good. I slept the better last night for it. This morning, however, I am nearly as bad again. Just now I opened Spencer, and the first lines I saw were these. The noble heart that harbours virtuous thought, and is with child of glorious great intent, can never rest until it forth have brought the eternal brood of glory. Excellent. Your sincere friend, John Keats. Or six months later, he's writing to his great friend Benjamin Bailey, November the 22nd, 1817. I'm certain of nothing but of the holiness of the heart's affections and the truth of the imagination. What the imagination seizes as beauty must be truth, whether it existed before or not. For I have the same idea of all our passions as of love. They are all, in their sublime, creative of essential beauty." I'm more zealous in this affair because I've never yet been able to perceive how anything can be known for truth by consecutive reasoning, and yet it must be. Can it be that even the greatest philosopher ever arrived at his goal without putting aside numerous objections? However it may be, oh, for a life of sensation rather than of thoughts. 
And this antithesis between um, sensation or feeling or intuition on the one hand and thoughts on the other is, of course, uh, a typically romantic idea that, that Wordsworth and Coleridge and the other great romantics had also written about. But nobody had written about it in quite such a way just to their friends in casual letters. Imagine today people exchanging emails along these lines. Um, you'd be rather astonished to, to, to receive them. It's in his letters that we hear about Keats's idea of negative capability or about his uh, mansion of many apartments, a very famous letter, or again the, the letter about the veil of soul-making. I mean, any one of these letters would have, been, uh, would have been enough to establish his reputation as extraordinary as a, as a thinker about poetry and about aesthetics. Um, but for Keats there are dozens of letters that contain these ideas. Here he is writing to John Taylor, February 1818. In poetry I have a few axioms, and you will see how far I am from their centre. First, I think poetry should surprise by a fine excess and not by singularity. It should strike the reader as a wording of his own highest thoughts, and appear almost a remembrance. And second, its touches of beauty should never be halfway there by making the reader breathless instead of content. The rise, the progress, the setting of imagery should, like the sun, come natural to him, shine over him, and set soberly, although in magnificence, leaving him in the luxury of twilight. But it is easier to think what poetry should be than to write it. And this leads me on to another axiom, that if poetry comes not naturally as the leaves to a tree, it had better not come at all. Uh, Keats's letters were fairly formal in many ways. Um, the, in almost all his letters, he signs them uh, John Keats or Keats or J. Keats, um, even many of his letters to, to his uh, beloved Fanny Brown. They also begin very formally, uh, you know, my dear Reynolds, my dear Taylor, and so on. And indeed, there's only one, apart from Fanny, there's only one male friend that he has that he doesn't address in a very formal way, and that's uh, Charles Cowden Clark, um, whom, with whom he was at school in Enfield. We hear in the letters about uh, his reading as well. Here he is to Reynolds um, in May 1818. We will have some such days upon the heath like that of last summer, and why not with the same book? Or what say you to a black-letter Chaucer printed in 1596? Aye, I've got one. Huzzah! I shall have it bound and gothic, a nice combra binding, and it will go a little way to unmodernize. The letters are actually absolutely jam-packed full of uh, quotations and references to Shakespeare, and n not just explicit ones, but uh, Keats's own language and the formulation of his ideas is, is very Shakespearean too. And um, you can get a whole book about this. There's a book by a man called White uh, called Keats Reading Shakespeare, which explores some of these um, echoes and allusions that we find throughout Keats. Here he is again about poetry, writing to James Hesse in October 1818. He says, The genius of poetry must work out its own salvation in a man. It cannot be matured by law and precept, but by sensation and watchfulness in itself. That which is creative must create itself. So, um, of the three, th three things I've just, just read, uh, we, the, the common theme is that uh, poetry has to come naturally, that it shouldn't be forced, it shouldn't be worked upon. Um, which is ironic, really, because Keats was an extraordinary technician. He knew precisely what he was doing and uh, what effect he was creating. But the key point for us is that he thinks, and in this sense he's distinguishing himself from Wordsworth, 
that poetry should seem completely natural. Um, this is ironic because uh, Wordsworth had claimed that that's what he was doing uh, by writing in the language of ordinary men. But uh, Keats feels that so much of Wordsworth is overwrought, so, so self-conscious, although he was very influenced by Wordsworth. In his uh, famous letter to Word Woodhouse in October 1818, he sets out a description of what he talks about as the poetical character. Um, it's a long letter, and you can read it yourself. It's October the 27th, 1818. An even longer letter he wrote to his brother George and, and uh, George's wife Georgiana, um, who'd gone to America. He wrote this letter in March 1819. It runs to about 70 pages of uh, an, a normal uh, Oxford Classics book or a Penguin Classics book so it's very long um, and that's the letter in which she talks about the veil of soul making um, throughout the letters we have this extraordinary sense of the liveliness of his personality these, these aren't sombre and serious letters even though they're about serious topics uh, they're full of energy and vigour and casual comments about friends and what they've been doing indeed the letter about negative capability um, or the, the, the paragraph about negative capability comes immediately after a, an observation that he's been walking home from the pantomime and uh, there's that sort of mixture of high seriousness with uh, insights into everyday life and then, of course, he meets Fanny Brown, and the letters that he wrote to her shocked the world when they were first published because they were they were thought to be so um, not not explicit. That's what would shock people nowadays, perhaps, but uh, just simply so um, revealing of his feelings. They felt to be far too feminine. It was one of the criticisms. Here he is writing to Fanny Brown, July twenty fifth, eighteen nineteen. I have two luxuries to brood over in my walks: your loveliness and the hour of my death. Oh, that I could have possession of them both in the same minute. I hate the world. It batters too much the wings of my self-will, and would I could take a sweet poison from your lips to send me out of it. From no others would I take it. I am indeed astonished to find myself so careless of all charms but yours, remembering as I do the time when even a bit of ribbon was a matter of interest with me. What softer words can I find for you after this? What it is I will not read, nor will I say more here, but in a postscript answer anything else you may have mentioned in your letter in so many words. For I am distracted with a thousand thoughts. I will imagine you Venus to-night, and pray, pray, pray to your star like a heathen. Yours ever, fair star, John Keats. Again, note the formality of the ending. Uh, notice the echoes of his own poetry. We have echoes there of um, Ode to a Nightingale, um, of the sonnet Bright Star, and also the sort of sadness at the dawning awareness of his own death. At this point, he wasn't actually aware that he was ill, um, but that's not far away. From Winchester in October 1819, October the 11th, 1819, College Street. My sweetest girl, I'm living today in yesterday. I was in a complete fascination all day. I felt myself at your mercy. Write me ever so few lines and tell me you will never forever be less kind to me than yesterday. You dazzled me. There's nothing in the world so bright and delicate. When Brown came out with that seemingly true story against me last night, I felt it would be death to me if you had ever believed it. Though against anyone else, I could muster up my obstinacy. Before I knew Brown could disprove it, I was for the moment miserable. When shall we pass a day alone? I have had a thousand kisses, for which with my whole soul I thank love, but if you should deny me the thousand and first, 
to put me to the proof how great a misery I could live through. If you should ever carry your threat yesterday into execution, believe me, tis not my pride, my vanity, or any petty passion would torment me. Really, to it hurt my, my heart. I could not bear it. I have seen Mrs. Dilk this morning, and she says she will come with me any fine day. Ever yours, John Keats. A hurt am mine. He writes at the very end, which is a quotation from Chaucer. He loved Chaucer, and he was very proud of the ancient edition of Chaucer's works that he had. Two days later, he writes to Fanny again. 25 College Street, October 13th, 1819. My dearest girl, This moment I have set myself to copy some verses out fair. I cannot proceed with any degree of content. I must write you a line or two and see if that will assist in dismissing you from my mind for ever so short a time. Upon my soul I can think of nothing else. The time is past when I had power to advise and warn you against the unpromising morning of my life. And then uh, in the rest of this letter, uh, it's all... It's not quite all a single sentence, but it's it's almost all a single sentence, and it's just filled with dashes as he flies from one idea to the next. My love has made me selfish. I cannot exist without you, dash. I am forgetful of everything but seeing you again, dash. My life seems to stop there, dash. I see no further. You have absorbed me. I have a sensation at the present moment as though I was dissolving. I should be exquisitely miserable without the hope of soon seeing you. I should be afraid to separate myself far from you. Will your heart never change? My love, will it? I have no limit now to my love. Your note came in just here. I cannot be happier away from you. Tis richer than an argosy of pearls. Do not threat me, even in jest. I have been astonished that men could die martyrs for religion. I've shuddered at it. I shudder no more. I could be martyred for my religion. Love is my religion. I could die for that. I could die for you. My creed is love, and you are its only tenet. You have ravished me away by a power I cannot resist, and yet I could resist till I saw you, and even since I've, be and even since I've seen you, I have endeavoured often to reason against the reasons of my love. I can do that no more. The pain would be too great. My love is selfish. I cannot breathe without you. Yours for ever, John Keats. Among Keats's many letters is one to Shelley, written on August the 16th, 1820. Keats by now was very ill. He knew that he was going to die, and he, his doctors had advised him that he needed to avoid an English winter and go and live in Rome, where it was a bit warmer. Hampstead, 18, August the 16th, 1820. My dear Shelley, I am very much gratified that you, in a foreign country, and with a mind almost over-occupied, should write to me in the strain of the letter beside me. If I do not take advantage of your invitation, it will be prevented by a circumstance I have very much at heart to prophesy. There is no doubt that an English winter would put an end to me, and do so in a lingering, hateful manner. Therefore, I must either voyage or journey to Italy, as a soldier marches up to a battery. The rest of the letter is made up um, with some sort of cheerful chat about Shelley's latest poem, and then he offers the following. Keats offers the following. He says, My imagination is a monastery, and I am its monk. You must explain my metaphors to yourself. I must express once more my deep sense of your kindness, adding my sincere thanks and respects for Mrs. Shelley. In the hope of soon seeing you, I remain most sincerely yours, John Keats. And here's a letter that doesn't have any dashes in, it's restrained, it's dignified, and it's very formal. And that variety of expression um, across the body of letters is what gives us 
perhaps the greatest insight into Keats's personality. At the very end of Keats's life, when he was living in Rome, he wrote very few letters, um, but we do have quite a, a number of letters from his friend Joseph Seven, who had taken him to Rome to look after him, and in fact Seven's letters home from Rome give us an extraordinary picture of the final two months of Keats's life. But uh, Keats wrote two letters that I'd like to read, both to his closest friend, Charles Brown, um, and the first one comes from Naples. They're, Keats and Seven arrived in Naples by ship, and they had to go into quarantine. Uh, this was just sort of a standard practice at the time, and nothing to do with Keats's own illness. And this is what he says. He, he's writing really about his love for Fanny Brown, and also a little bit for his sister uh, towards the end of the letter. Um, f he'd had this intense love for Fanny Brown, but by the time he met her, he was becoming ill. And so fairly soon in their relationship, he hadn't really been allowed to have any physical contact with her. And he refers to this in this letter. My dear Brown, yesterday we were let out of quarantine, during which my health suffered more from bad air and a stifled cabin than it had done the whole voyage. The fresh air revived me a little, and I hope I am well enough this morning to write you a short, calm letter. I can bear to die. I cannot bear to leave her. Oh, God! God! God, everything I have in my trunks that reminds me of her goes through me like a spear. The silk lining she put in my travelling cap scolds my head. My imagination is horribly vivid about her. I see her. I hear her. There's nothing in the world of sufficient interest to divert me from her for a moment. This was the case when I was in England. I cannot recollect without shuddering that time that I was a prisoner at Hunt's and used to keep my eyes fixed on Hampstead all day. Then there was a good hope of seeing her again. Now? Oh, that I could be buried near where she lives. I am afraid to write to her, to receive a letter from her, to see her handwriting would break my heart, even to hear of her, anyhow, to see her name written would be more than I can bear. My dear Brown, what am I to do? Where can I look for consolation or ease? If I had any chance of recovery, this passion would kill me. Indeed, through the whole of my illness, both at your house and at Kentish Town, this fever has never ceased wearing me out. When you write to me, which you will do immediately, write to Rome, and if she's well and happy, mark a cross thus. Remember me to all, I will endeavour to bear my mis miseries patiently. Write a short note to my sister, saying you've heard from me. Seven is very well. If I were in better health, I should urge your coming to Rome. I fear there's no one can give me any comfort. Is there any news of George? Oh, that something fortunate had ever happened to me or my brothers. Then I might hope. But despair is forced upon me as a habit. My dear Brown, for my sake, be her advocate for ever. I cannot say a word about Naples. I do not feel at all concerned in the thousand novelties around me. I am afraid to write to her. I should like her to know that I do not forget her. Brown, I have coals of fire in my breast. It surprised me that the human heart is capable of containing and bearing so much misery. Was I born for this end? God bless her, and her mother, and my sister, and George and his wife, and you and all. Your ever-affectionate friend, John Keats. And then on the 30th of November 1820, Keats wrote his last letter, again to Brown, but this time from Rome. My dear Brown, tis the most difficult thing in the world to me to write a letter, my stomach continues so bad that I feel it worse on opening any book. I am afraid to encounter the proing and conning of anything interesting to me in England. I have a habitual feeling of my real life having passed, 
and that I am leading a posthumous existence. God knows how it would have been, but it appears to me, however, I will not speak of that subject. I cannot answer anything in your letter which followed me from Naples to Rome, because I am afraid to look it over again. I am so weak in mind that I cannot bear the sight of any handwriting of a friend I love so much as I do you. Yet I ride the little horse, and at my worst, even in quarantine, summoned up more puns, in a sort of desperation, in one week than in any year of my life. There is one thought, enough to kill me. I have been well, healthy, alert, etc., walking with her. And now, the knowledge of contrast, feeling for light and shade, all that information, the primitive sense, necessary for a poem, are great enemies to the recovery of the stomach. There, you rogue, I put you to the torture. You m must bring your philosophy to bear, as I do mine, really. Or how should I be able to live? Dr. Clark is very attentive to me. He says there's very little the matter with my lungs, but my stomach, he says, is very bad. I'm well disappointed in hearing good news from George, for it runs in my head we should all die young. If I recover, I will do all in my power to correct the mistakes made during the sickness, and if I should not, all my faults will be forgiven. Remember me to all friends, write to George as soon as you receive this, and tell him how I am as far as you can guess, and also a note to my sister, who walks about my imagination like a ghost. She's so like Tom. I can scarcely bid you good-bye, even in a letter. I always made an awkward bow. God bless you. John Keats <laughs>